All right, men. Well, you can be seated. It's our last session, and um, and again, lock in, and I uh, encourage you to to listen and to be awake here. I know it's past some of your all's bedtimes, specifically Mike Linstead. <laughs> he goes to bed at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and, uh, and I know those wings are, are starting to run through the system now, right? Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, the coffee, the, the, uh, the wings. Um, and so you can turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, and you can... Just kind of hold your spot there. Hold your spot there, Nehemiah chapter 1. And we understand that there is a need for men to lead. We understand that men are called to lead in the home. And we understand that men are called to lead within the church. Um, This complementarianism is specifically seen in the roles of the home and in the church. We see that in the scripture. In, um, In various passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 14, we looked at that. The man is supposed to be the speaker in the church, the preacher or the teacher in the church, right? Um, when it says, I, permit, I, I don't permit a woman to speak, it's in the context of her being the teacher or preacher, teacher of the Bible. Women are not called to be pastors. There is no woman pastor. If a woman is a pastor, they're not a pastor, though they have that title. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verses 11, let's just turn there. Verses, keep your finger in Nehemiah, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verses 11 through 14. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 through 14. That's where we see, I do not permit a woman to what? Teach. Okay, we've seen that. Let's turn to um, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just turn over one. We've looked at this before, but the qualifications for a deacon is, I mean, for an overseer or an elder or a shepherd is that he's a what? He's a man. We see in Titus, just turn two books over to the right. Titus chapter 1, the qualifications for elders right, is that he's a what? He's a man. Okay, so all I'm, all I'm trying to point out to you, I'm not, I'm not trying to um, dissect, well, what does that mean for women here? Um, we can do that another time pretty simply, but all I'm trying to show you at this point is that there is distinctness in roles for the man within the church. The man is called to be the what? 
leader within the church. The men are, are supposed to be the ones who are walking around here leading. When there are needs, in order to fulfill responsibilities, you are called to lead. When you see ministries that are struggling, you are not to, to sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. You're supposed to do what? Lead. When you see a need, when you think of a need within the church, Are you waiting for somebody to tell you to do something? Or are you leading? If you see a brother in sin and it needs to be corrected before it gets bigger, do you just wait? Or do you go and point out his fault and help restore him? That's leadership. Do you take initiative to disciple or invest in other men who need to be poured into? That's leadership. We need men to lead, especially in service, especially in service, serving the body. Ephesians 4 talks about how God has gifted the church with leaders who are pastors or teachers. What's their job? We've, we studied it. To do what? To equip and mature the saints. Why do they want to equip and mature the saints so that the saints do what with each other? Do what? Serve each other. Do the work of service, the work of the ministry. That's how the church gets stronger. The pastor equips with the word, the people mature, and then they serve each other. They don't just serve on committees or on you know, official ministries, that too. But they just, they're just all over the place, taking initiative, serving things. The faucet's broke. The lawn needs mowed. The building needs to be fixed. This brother needs help. This widow needs help, right? This brother's in sin. I haven't seen this family in a long time. I mean, that's just men all over the place leading We've got to equip missionaries. We've got to equip more men to do, to do this. We, we need, I, I want to be an elder. I, I want to be a deacon. I want to serve in this way. Like all of that is initiative. You don't take, sit back and just wait. You're, you're building up the body of Christ so it becomes more mature and healthy and Christ-like until we all attain, Ephesians 4 says, the unity of the faith, right? Mature manhood. You're doing everything you can that the church would, would grow up. And I'm saying this with, with, with experience and observation that there are, are so many needs in the church and there's so much opportunity for men to meet those needs and they don't. And we're sitting here wondering, oh, who's going to do this? While well, men are going home to watch the game. This is not for us. 
This has to be an internal motivation because you want to serve Christ in the body. The men are called to lead. The women will serve in various ways too. But for the most part, women in the church are outworking the men. And so we need men to serve. We need men to use their giftings. You guys have been gifted in so many different ways. And this is not an indictment on our church. I'm speaking in general. Although if if you feel that conviction, don't push it away. I'm, I'm telling you that your gifts are not just for yourself. Are you good at building? Are are you good at singing? Uh, Are you good at explaining and teaching? Uh, Are you good at counseling? uh, What are you you good at? Why do you only use your gifts for your job and then act like you're tired and spent when you have to use those gifts for the church? We get so easily exhausted Romans 12 describes gifting. 1 Corinthians 12 describes gifting. 1 Peter 4 describes gifting. But you know what's interesting about all those places? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. All those places have lists of gifts. You know what's interesting about all those gifts? Gifts? Is that there's a ton of overlap which really points us to the fact that it's not exhaustive. Those lists are not exhaustive in their giftings. Those are just samplings. People are gifted in a lot of different ways, and it's hard, really, the Bible makes no real way to differentiate between just people's created talents and their spiritual gifts and how those come together. It just all fits together. There are sign gifts that were given to literally be signs of truth and apostleship. But then there was the service gifts, which are really for everybody in the church. But can I tell you something? The focus is not on the gift in the scriptures. The focus is on the service. The purpose for the gifts is the gift is for what? Service. It's for service. It's the fact that everybody should be serving. Paul said, I don't count my life of any value so that I can do what? We're reading it in Acts. Finish the what? Finish the course. My life is about expending it for the service of Christ, right? That needs to be your focus. And if that needs to be the focus of every Christian, who should be the ones that are leading out in it? The men. The men. You are the example of doing that. You can't put a limit on yourself and say, well, I only serve this much because I kind of get tired. (laughs) Like, I mean, you're going to get tired. Serving is hard. It takes selflessness. 
It takes giving up yourself. It takes time and energy. It takes forgetting yourself, putting someone else first. It takes a fight. But why do you do it? It's not because you just, you know, you got to impress somebody. It's because you're dedicated to the Lord and his church and the building up of his body. Right? That's why you're devoted to serving in the church. That's why you should be. The focus is on the serving. So I want to point us to a faithfulness and service. And that's why I want us to be in Nehemiah. This is going to be pretty simple. Nehemiah. And I want to do five principles from the first five chapters. Just five principles from the first five chapters. If you were to spend time in the book of Nehemiah, I mean, you could just be blown away by the first five chapters. It's just, I mean, it's just incredible. And in many ways, as they build God's city and, and, and restore the ability for people to worship God, um, in many ways here, it's connected to um, thematically in, in scripture to the building of, of God's church and the establishment of, of worshiping him. And so I think these principles um, are very applicable in terms of leadership for the building of the church. So what do we see here? I'm just going to, I'm going to point these out and do my best to point you to these verses. I just spent hours today just reading these and just being amazed by these chapters. Um, you can go home and, and spend some more time if you need to. What do we see here from Nehemiah? Well, let, me, let me first tell you this. Nehemiah writes this book, okay? So you see uh, in the beginning here, Verse four, you see a first person there. Who's talking then? Nehemiah, he's praying there, right? Um, you guys know this story a lot, but let's see what we see from Nehemiah. Number one, we see an internal motivation. We see an internal motivation, right? Internal motivation. Why does Nehemiah wanna do what he's doing? Why? Why? Yeah, he loves God. Let's look at this. Let's look at verses one through four. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hillel, Hakaliel, sorry. Now it happened in the month of Chisli in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and I was asked them, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is what? It's broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. Now look at this. As soon 
as I heard these words, I what? I sat down and wept and mourned. That's someone who cares about the name of the Lord. That's someone who cares about the worship of the Lord. That's someone who cares about the city of the Lord. That's someone who's, why does Nehemiah do everything from this point forward in the rest of the book? Because he's genuinely caring about this. He's internally motivated. Right? Do you see it? I mean, it can't be to where someone is not coming up to him and saying, you know, Nehemiah, you know, this, this whole city of God, it's being destroyed. The walls are torn down. Yeah, that's terrible. I wish someone would do something about it. Can you do it? Well, let me see if I have time. I'll check my schedule, you know? He's sitting down and he's weeping over this. He is motivated internally because of his, his commitment to God. The second thing we see here then is initiative. Initiative. I think initiative is the, um, maybe one of the most indispensable gifts of a true leader. Initiative. Someone who does something on their own accord. Verses one, or 4b through 2.15. Let's just look at what he does here. After he wept for days, think he cares? Then he did what? I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here's what he did. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. I mean, who's telling him to pray? Who's telling him to pray? And nobody, no one's forcing him to do it, right? Yeah, himself. I mean, he's praying how often? Day and night. He cares. I mean, in simple terms, he cares inside. He's internally motivated. He loves God. He's committed to God, to his name and his, his, his renown and, and, and his people, God's people. He's committed. And so it motivates him internally and he does something about it. No one's forcing him to do this. Day in and day out, he's praying for the people of, of Israel, right? Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. He's confessing. We've acted corruptly against you. We've not kept your commandments, your statutes, your rules. Verse eight. And now he's praying in terms of supplication. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather you and bring, and bring them to this place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of, of your servants who delight in 
to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant his mercy in the sight of this man. Now is a cupbearer to the king. So he's praying day and night. He's confessing the sin on behalf of the people. He's taking initiative to, to seek after God and ask for God to remember his, his promise to his people. No one's forcing him to do this. This is all initiative. Chapter two, in the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine, gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? Um, when the city, the place of my father's graves, uh, my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed. Then the king said, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servants have found favor in your sight, servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Who's telling him to leave there and go rebuild the city? Nobody. Listen now. Stay awake. We're almost done. Who's telling him to do this? Nobody. Think that's going to be a lot of work? <laughs> I mean, this is going to be a lot of work. And the king said to me, how long are you going to be gone for? When are you going to return? Verse 6. So it pleased the king to send me. Verse seven, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass, right? And um, he's asking for all these letters. Verse nine, just jumping down. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, gave them the letters, right? Verse 10, people heard about this and that displeased them greatly. So I went to Jerusalem and was... I was there three days, and look what he's doing. He told no one what God had put into his heart to do for Jerusalem. There's no one, he's not telling anybody. That doesn't mean the universal principle you shouldn't tell anybody, but is there anybody forcing him to do this? Verse 13, look what he does. I went out by night, the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in the gates, destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate, king's gate, king's pool. There was no room for the animals. Then I went up in the night by the valley, inspected that wall. I mean, who's with him? Pay, just stay with me. Who's with him? Nobody. What is he doing? He's walking around at night doing what? Inspecting the walls. I mean, that is a leader. That's a leader. That's a leader. He's internally motivated. He cares. He shows initiative. He acted. While others are idle, the leader takes initiative. He's not passive. He's not lazy. He takes action. He, this is what he does. He looks for ways to serve This is the leader. Verse uh, number three, we see the investment. A leader invests in others. 
We see investment. I mean, there's internal motivation. There's initiative. And he doesn't stay doing this by himself. He invests in others. In verses 16 through 332, I mean, really, that's what these, this whole section is about. Officials didn't, look at verse 16. I'm not gonna read all of it, but look at, just follow along with me in the scripture, okay? Verse 16, officials didn't know where I was. I had not yet told the Jews. The priests and nobles, officials, right? He, he hadn't told them. And, um, and so we see these people opposing him. All right, now look at chapter three, starting in verse one. Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and what they do? They built the sheep gate, right? And they did some other things. Next to him, the men of what? Jericho, they built too. Next to them, who? Zakor, the son of Imri, built. Then the sons of Hesena, they built the what? The fish gate. I mean, we could just go through all of this, right? If we just keep on going through chapter three, you just see a whole lot of what? Of people around him. I mean, this is just name after name after name after name. Who started this? Nehemiah started all of this. I mean, you just keep going through all this, right? You just keep going through all of it. And, I mean, who do you think is behind all of this? Nehemiah, he's empowering these people. They're motivated too, but he's empowering them. Leadership in the church is going to take investment in others. If no one, look around you, and if no one's following you, then you're not a what? A leader. You're just, you've read it before, probably taking a, a walk. If you're walking and there's no one following you, you're not a leader. You're just taking a walk, right? Leadership is made up of, leadership is proven by people following you. You have an internal motivation to do something. You take initiative, specifically within the church, for the, for the spiritual purpose of the worship of God and the and the investment of his people. But then there are people that are surrounding you and serving alongside of you whom you have invested in and motivated and shown the need and helped them and, and called them to the same important work. There's empowerment, there's delegation. This is how people become loyal to you. You invest in them. You make them the best servants of the Lord possible. You want to help them. You bring them along in a task with you. You help people know how to serve the Lord. You don't underestimate this. Can I tell you something? One of the greatest um, deficiencies that we've seen regarding leadership in the church 
is the inability for people to develop and empower others around them. So someone can step up and say, I see a need and I'm gonna do it. And then they'll put their head down and just try to faithfully do it. And they'll just continue to do that for a long time until they're just burnt out or they'll just keep doing it. And over years and years and years, there will never be anyone else who's been developed or empowered. That's not leadership. You need to to see the need and then you need to motivate others and you need to tell them and you need to invest in them and help them get there and make them the best servants possible and delegate and orchestrate the symphony and make them see the vision and help them see what, what could be done and what's wrong and why it needs to be done. You need to be, men who lead in the church are men who develop other men. That's why in 2 Timothy, what does Paul say in chapter two, starting in, I think in verse one, 2 Timothy chapter two, verse two. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witness and trust to faithful what? men who will be able to teach others also. You're investing in a man who then can invest in other men. For the task, spiritually, etc. you've got to learn to empower other people. If you're still doing the task by yourself after a certain amount of time, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. We need to invest in other people. Okay, let me just say two more things. We're done here. Number four, there's an indomitable spirit. Indomitable spirit. There's internal motivation. There's initiative. There's investment. And this man is indomitable. Verses one through 23 in chapter four. What does he start facing in chapter four? Yep. What, are they, what kind of things are saying to them? What is he saying? Right? Look at verse 7. I'll just point out a couple. Look at verse 7. What does it say there at the end? They were very what? Angry. Verse 8. What they do? They all what? Plotted together. Right? But people who are, men who are leaders in the church, they don't give in to that, right? What does Nehemiah tell him at the end of verse 14? What? Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fights for you and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Right? What they do at verse 15 after their enemies heard about all this, at the end of verse 15, they just return to the work. <laughs> right? They just return to the work. Right? They return to the work. What they do, verse 23. 
Neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. We each kept his weapon in his right, what? In his right hand. They were ready to fight, but they were also continuing on with the work, right? And, um, and so they were indomitable, means they weren't easily stopped. They were disciplined. They were disciplined. Listen now. Just listen here. In order to be indomitable in this way, you have to be motivated by principle more than you're motivated by desire. You have to be motivated by conviction and principle more than you're motivated to follow your feelings and your desires. The only way to continue in the course of action without being discouraged and stopped when hard things come is to be motivated by the principles of scripture, to be motivated by conviction, not by impulses. You don't follow your feelings. You follow the truth. You're determined and you're bold and you're strong and you're willing to continue going, right? You don't fatigue. You don't stop at fatigue or threat or critics, right? You, you, you keep, keep going because you're motivated by principle, you're not motivated by your, your feelings. You're motivated by doing what's right. Motivated by doing what's right. That's what you have to be motivated by. That's the only way you'll keep going. And what the scripture says and what you're trying to accomplish for the Lord. Last one here is that they were indivisible. Indivisible. In chapter five, we see that there comes a temptation for them to be divided, right? There arose a great outcry of the people, right? There were those who were mortgaging our fields. We are mortgaging our fields and vineyards, and there were those who said we have borrowed money and and so um, they were forcing their sons and daughters to be slaves, right? And um, they were exacting interest from each other. And there was just a whole bunch of internal conflict going on. What was Nehemiah's response in verse 6 when he saw it and heard of it? He was angry. And so... Nehemiah speaks to them. He was angry. And, um, and so the Nehemiah um, says in verse 9, look at it. The thing that you are doing is what? Not good. You ought to walk in the fear of God. And so verse 11 Return to them this very day their fields, vineyards, olive orchards. Verse 12, what was their response? They said what? Restore it. And, um, 
And so Nehemiah leads them from there. And, um, and so he continues, they continue working from there. Um, and so these people were motivated to work and they kept working together. There was unity. They were like an army. There was a unit. They loved each other. There was no selfish gain. They kept going here at this point. Not saying they're gonna be perfect moving forward. But as I told you, the only way this gets accomplished is if they do it what? Together. If they do this together. And so we see these simple principles in terms of the, the rebuilding of God's, God's city, God's house, and, um, and these are principles that we certainly can apply as we are men who serve and build God's church. And I just beg you to be these men, not for the sake of our church, but for the sake of, of you being faithful to the Lord. I mean, be internally motivated. Be internally motivated. If you're not, ask yourself why you're not. Take initiative. Take initiative. Serve any way you can. Serve. Take initiative to build the church. Invest in others. Make other men stronger. I mean, I don't, you just pick one man in our church. I mean, go and go sit down and, and sit down once a week and go through the qualifications of eldership in First Timothy and Titus. Doesn't mean that you have to be elders, but that's certainly what the highest level of men should be, their lives should look like. So wouldn't you want to aspire to be that in your character? I mean, just go do that, right? Like you can do any of that. Invest in other men. Don't let, be indomitable. Don't let resistance stop you. Be determined, but be determined by principle. And we gotta stay unified in this, man. We gotta stay unified. And so these are our principles to lead in the church. We have to be, there's a need for men to lead. We need men to lead in the home and we need men to lead within the church. We are complementarianists. There is a distinction and men are the leaders. And so as we close this out tonight, I know that um, it's 9.45, but here's what I wanna do. I wanna take 10 minutes, okay? And then we'll let you out of here. I want us to take 10 minutes and I want you to get with a group, okay? Get with a group of, uh, of five or so people and just go around and, and talk about the ways in which you're gonna be different because of, of tonight? What ways are you gonna be different? I mean, this is not information only. This has to lead to transformation. We wanna have men who are leaders. I want all of us to walk, walk in here on Sunday proud to be the leaders that God has made us to be. Okay, so go ahead and do that and then I'll close us in, in just, you know, five or 10 minutes. Group of five.